0: Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother.
1: wrestling podcast i want to thank everybody for writing that song about his favorite podcast dick's wrestling if every week you give us 60 minutes perhaps indeed we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast i before we get rolling i want to invite everyone to join our facebook group Uh, a lot of fun wrestling talk there results pictures whatever it's a good time we even talk about college football and baseball sometimes who knows um also follow me on twitter just uh Put in the name John McAdam and follow follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling avatar, I, Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Uh, this, this is Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. I think that is those two things are kind of important. One last thing. If you want to donate to the Stick to Wrestling podcast, it is ad-free. It is completely free. Um, PayPal to Pro Wrestling Archives. That's all one word at gmail.com. Uh, all I get out of this is donations and the satisfaction of entertaining all of you every single week. And with that, I want to bring on a popular returning guest, Brandon Hefner. Brandon and I are going to be talking Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was now World Championship Wrestling from 40 years ago, the fall of 1982. Brandon, thanks for coming back.
2: Uh, yeah, I appreciate you having me back, man. I always enjoy it and have a good time. Uh, should be, should be a good hour here.
1: That, that's the thing about Stick to Wrestling. That's why I like doing it. It is me hanging out with one of my friends talking old school wrestling. It is all, I always, I have a good time every single week.
2: Absolutely. There's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, that, that's one of the funnest things I do. I, you know, I, there's nobody else to really talk to it when you're 52 other than on, on, online and on the group. So it's, it's nice to do it in, in this setting as well.
1: Totally. All right. Georgia championship wrestling. Both Brandon and I got it on cable. Uh, I'm, I bet you watched it every week. I know I did. I did. Um,
2: and I only had one other buddy that I wasn't even that good of friends with. To really watched every week. My closest friends didn't and would always give me shit at, you know, Tindall 5 oh, yeah. when I took off to, to go home, and I, I didn't care. I was 12. It didn't matter what the hell we were doing. I was going home to watch. You know, you're going to watch the fake crap, and I didn't care. I never missed. Like I said, it didn't matter what we were doing. Um I was there every week unless we were out of town or something really strange was going on. I I didn't miss so
1: I I'm going to raise the stakes, okay? It wasn't just my friends who were giving me crap about not leaving the house until 8:05 every single Saturday night. It was my girlfriends. Okay, that's number 1. Number 2, the only time I ever missed Georgia Championship wrestling was when I was in Boston for the WWF shows I mean that was the one exception I made every four or five weeks and I had one of my friends from school take notes on what happened on on Georgia Championship Wrestling so I could keep up I mean well, it was
2: at least you had somebody to do that so if I missed it I just missed it um, we you know what's weird we didn't get our first VCR until I guess 83 or so and for some reason, I just – maybe it was the cost of tapes and my dad was cheap, but I just didn't tape stuff back then, and I kicked myself all the time for it now.
1: You know, I mean, I've, I've told the story before. My first VCR was, I want to say, July 1985. And I mean, one of my friends, like after the first Battle of the Belts, like Labor Day 1985, I was like, hey, I recorded that. You want to borrow it? I'm like, no, I've already seen it. And, right. you know, for taking into account what I eventually turned into, eventually meaning about a year and a half later, I, I just crack up over that.
2: Now, there's nothing wrong with it. And thank God you did, because a lot of us have got uh, our first tapes from from you. So
1: I'm glad you did. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, you know, it was, it was a, a lot of work at first, especially in 1987. You know, I'd be getting literally like 50 tapes a week from people and building the collection and doing nothing but like going through the tapes. It was, it was all fun. I can't believe that was 35 years ago. But anyway, yeah, I mean, if, and that's a truth. That, oh, yeah. Back before you know, I got that VCR in 1985, summer of '85. I mean, if, if I missed something, I missed it, and kind of turned my entire world around. Thank God.
2: Sure. You're right. Yeah. All right. Fall of
1: 1982, Georgia Championship Wrestling. I would say that the two the, there were two really big stories, both involving Roddy Piper. Roddy had just turned babyface. Uh, turning when he rescued Gordon Soley from a raging, magnificent Morocco. Uh, Gordon and Roddy Piper always had an interesting re- on-camera relationship. When it was like, okay, Roddy, he's the bad guy wrestler, he's the smart aleck, etc., etc. But he was Always very respectful and very friendly to Gordon Soli. And Gordon was a professional right back. This is the guy I'm doing commentary with. You know, I don't care if Tommy Rich and Dusty Rhodes don't like him. And there was, you know, there was such a respect between the two that, you know, it was a shocking moment, but you could totally see, like, if, if a wrestler, even if it was Roddy Piper's best friend, partner in crime, Don Morocco, if Morocco went after Soli, I mean, Roddy Piper, you knew was gonna, I mean, it was no surprise when he run, ran in. It was, it was a surprise to see, but it was like, you know, of course Roddy Piper defended him.
2: Yeah, and I literally, while I was waiting for you guys tonight, I rewatched it, and um I was sh- shocked at remembering it, or I didn't remember how manic that, uh, Morocco was, not Piper morocco um when he was berating solely about you never liked me you never showed me respect even you know way back to florida you never said i was the first one to reverse the figure four and this and that with jack briscoe and kind of kind of poking him and um but also there was the little incident right before that where he got a little out of control maybe with johnny rich and they just kind of knocked Soli over and Piper came and kind of went to commercial and then Gordon came back. And then they had the actual deal where, uh, Morocco's poking at Soli and, and Piper actually saves him and, and jumps Morocco. So it was sort of a little two, two part deal there. Um, they teased it a little bit at first, I guess you'd call it.
1: They did. They made, you know, the first one, okay, it was an accident. Morocco should not be, you know, getting into big fights with, with Gordon Soli, you know, five feet away. But, alright, it was an accident. And when Piper made the save, it was almost like, you know, at first, Roddy was, he was trying to just calm Morocco down. Hey, hey, calm down. And then it exploded and, you know, Morocco shoves Piper and Piper starts pounding on him. It was great. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, Morocco tells him to take a walk and um, and then turns around and slugs him and goes after Gordon and then Piper's on his back and – I was laughing because it was kind of all huge names out there during the pull apart except for Chick Donovan. And I just kind (laughs) of chuckled. It was like, you know, one of these things is not like, not like the other here. And Chick was fine. I, you know, I'm kind of kidding, but, um, you know, it was mass superstar and Sawyer and Ole and all the huge names. And then, and then Chick out there too. I just kind of chuckled
1: at that. And then Ole Anderson the next week, you know, Piper accidentally gets in a little, you know, in in the fracas, Ole gets like shoved or something, and he comes out, he keeps demanding an apology from Roddy Piper. You know, a lot of people think I I don't like Ole Anderson or something like that. Ole was great in this role. I mean, he, he was fantastic. Just, hey, I want an apology, and Piper's like, no.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's classic Oli, the curmudgeon and, um, just always demanding respect. And, um, yeah, he it was perfect Oli. It was ex- exactly him and just kind of what you expected out of him.
1: Now, the, the second biggest, um, news probably of fall 1982 also involves Roddy Piper. He got fired. Right around October, November, I tried to figure out exactly when it happened, but I couldn't. Ole Anderson fired him because he and Tommy Rich were showing up incredibly late every single night. I mean, to the point where, you know, they're in the main event or the main event and the co-main event, and they're having to drag out the first four matches because they haven't even arrived at the arena yet. And, you know, someone was going to get it, and it was Roddy Piper.
2: Uh, yeah, you know, just taking a quick glance at his last Omni card would have been October 17th, he faced uh, Kabuki, and then he's kind of gone, it looks like, even from TV right after that, Um, he did the October 3rd. Uh, versus, uh, Abdullah, actually. I guess Oli brought, uh, Abdullah in or whoever did, and that was a double DQ, and then Kabuki, and then he was gone at, at least after the 17th of October, so I think your timeline's pretty spot on.
1: Yeah, Oli, Oli did bring in great Kabuki, uh, Roddy Piper, Offered not Abdullah the butcher. Oli brought in Abdullah the butcher. Uh, Roddy Piper had brought in Abdullah earlier in 1982 uh, and gave him five thousand dollars to take. I I don't remember who out. Of, I think it was Dusty Rhodes. And then Oli Anderson doubles it. He offered Abdullah ten thousand dollars to take out Roddy Piper. And it was so funny. Gordon's on TV talking about how Oli and his money rarely get separated. So this really is a big event, it felt like Gord was kind of uh, shoot nudging on Oli just a little bit.
2: Absolutely. He was, yeah, he was uh, letting a little bit of the cat out of the bag there, and, and the people at home had no clue what he was talking about, but he, nope. was, he was right on
1: the money. <laughs> I I remember watching it and just thinking, okay, typical heel stuff, but no, that's the truth. Um, but yeah, you know, at, at the end of the day, I have given Oli a hard time for hi- for firing guys at times it felt like his hand was very quick on the trigger but here i cannot blame him and i i can't think that piper and rich were not warned and if these guys are you know borderline no showing every night you got to do something
2: yeah absolutely even somebody of piper's you know stature and it's funny that you know there's always been stories but you know i don't it seems like maybe that's the only place he pushed it that far and perhaps by 82 he learned that he could uh, damn well could be replaced if they wanted to uh, no matter how hot he was so you know i just maybe it happened in the WWF and and then in Mid Atlantic later you know the next year but It seems like maybe it calmed him down a a bit, at least as far as showing up super late. And then on the other hand, it was probably not good to have him and Tommy Rich running around together because they were both, you know, known to have certain proclivities or whatever you'd like to call them. And
1: Mm -hmm.
2: they probably had a little too much fun together. So,
1: yeah, it. I mean it, it sounded like it straightened I don't want to use the word sobered up, but it it definitely straightened both of them out. I mean Roddy as far as I know never had any problems in it when he just was exclusively wrestling at Mid Atlantic after that and Tommy Rich got his act together. So I mean, you know, Oli did what he had to do.
2: Yes. And, you know, and I I would think if, you know, maybe Piper would have came back around and because, you know, they talk Zoli was sort of back and forth that at some point he was, you know, almost like Vince said you could think that it was over. The bridge was burned. And if a guy could make some money after a little bit of time, they were going to bring him back at some point.
1: Yeah, I mean it's funny. As far as I know, there are only two people who really permanently burned their bridge with Vince McMahon. One is Kevin Kelly, aka Nails, and yes. the other one is Oli Anderson. <laughs> yes,
2: well, two. One was a
1: physical assault on his
2: uh, own body, and the other, evidently, a verbal assault on his wife and himself. So, and that sounds just like Oli. So, I can buy that that happened completely.
1: When I first heard about the story, I half believed it. I half didn't believe it. And then there it is in Oli's book. Yeah, I did it. Like, wow.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he was just, you know, and I can understand being uh, that mad. But the the things were changing, and Oli was going to do it, too. He had the drive, and he had the TV, you know. He didn't need all the syndication packages. He had one station that could do what, you know – 80 local channels could do or 100 or, or whatever. So um, it was just a it was a crazy time.
1: Absolutely. Now, think about two of the best talkers, not just in 1982, but in pro wrestling history. We're talking about Roddy Piper and Jerry Lawler. And all of a sudden, Jerry Lawler starts sending in tapes from Memphis Uh, verbally attacking Roddy Piper. And I mean, this, they set up like this awesome feud and it never happened because, you know, uh, Piper got fired. Tommy Rich wound up taking his place at the Omni against Jerry Lawler. But I mean, talk about a feud with unlimited potential.
2: Yes, that would have been amazing. And the best part was, the Lawler was coming in, you know, half expecting to be the baby face. And I loved his indignant, you know, demeanor when he was in the studio. You know, why aren't you cheering for me here like they do in Memphis? I, I don't understand this. And it's, uh, it's sad that that didn't get off the ground and, um, that could have been really cool. I'm sure the Lawler. Rich match at the Omni was cool. Evidently it was a no contest, but people had seen that a bunch, not in Atlanta necessarily, but they, they, they definitely had Memphis. So, um, but yeah, that, that would have been amazing. And uh, the promos themselves would have, you know, possibly been more entertaining than the matches.
1: You know, you use the word amazing. You know what I think would be amazing if we had some of the audio from the Roddy Piper Jerry Lawler. We have it? Oh my God. We've got some audio for educational and for educational purposes only. Let's hear some of the Roddy Piper Jerry Lawler feud with Jerry Lawler in the Atlanta studio. Nice.
3: Piper seems to have become a target for people of late, and a lot of them have uh, come up
0: against you and failed. Well, I've been lucky enough to. Uh... Been winning, I toned down a little bit, you know. I'm trying not to be such a smart aleck. <laughs> uh, it's not so not so easy for me. And so all of a sudden, I got all kinds of people coming after me. And they, they, they make me come out here again. And, and I got to listen to something that's this, this Jerry Lawler, the king of wrestling from Memphis. He sent another tape in here and another wrestling match, and I'm going to have to sit here and be humiliated and, and listen to it. So I'm going to go ahead and sit here and listen to it, and then I'll talk to him.
3: Fair enough. Let's take a look then and listen to Jerry Lawler and a match of his. Well, there's a gentleman that we're going to be seeing in action momentarily who is known as the king of wrestling. I'm referring, of course, to Jerry Lawler, a man that I've had an opportunity to watch wrestle all over the country. And welcome to World Championship
4: Wrestling. Thank you, Gordon. I I, I heard you say that you have had an opportunity to see me wrestle all over the country. Unfortunately, everybody hasn't had that same opportunity. You know, I am known... Primarily as the King of Memphis. I make my home in Memphis, Tennessee. Very proud to be from that great city. And, uh, I have dominated wrestling there for years, Gordon. Well, there's no and now, about that. that's true. Okay. Now what I figure I'll do is just kind of spread my domain. You know what I mean? I'm going to branch out a little bit. I'm coming into the Atlanta area and, and just going to be going all over the country. And, uh, well, it's just as simple as this. I plan on becoming not only the King of Memphis, but simply the king of wrestling, Gordon. And you know, when I came into this area, everybody told me that there's already a king down here. There's already a man who's considered to be the top dog or the big wheel, you know. And so I said, well, who could this man be? And they said, well, it's Roddy Piper. Let Let me ask these people something. When you people go to a movie, do you talk back to the screen? Listen, when I'm up here, just sit there and shut up and let me do the talking, okay? Is that all right? Can you get that message across to these people, Gordon? I think you've done it quite adequately. Okay. What I wanted to say was everybody considers Roddy the Piper the big wheel around here. Well, you know, I I don't get to see this television show very often because I am traveling around the country. But the few times that I did see it, I saw Roddy Piper on here wearing... He wears a dress sometimes. No, kilts. Kilt. So he's a Scotsman, yes. Scotsman mm-hmm. wears a kilt, mm-hmm. a dress, no. same thing, right?
3: Well, no, that's a matter of death. Well, what, anyway, he was always running his mouth every time I saw him out here wearing the little
4: dress. He reminds me of that wimp Andy Kaufman that I put in the hospital up in Memphis, you see. I, I said the same thing, and the same thing goes true about uh, Roddy Piper. When he was born, his, his mother wanted a girl, and his father wanted a boy, and they were both satisfied. Do you know what I mean? Now, that's what I think of Roddy Piper. All I can say is this. Why Roddy Piper not here today he's supposedly the head man of the area the big wheel but he's not here conveniently because he knew that I am here right I came looking for Roddy Piper Roddy Piper is conveniently not here. Do you have any idea where he is?
3: No, as a matter of fact, I don't. But I'm sure that uh, he has an excellent reason for not being here. And
4: I'm sure you consider
3: yourself that reason.
4: Well, what? <laughs> that is exactly right. You followed the example of your head and came right to the point there, didn't you, Gordon? That is exactly right. I am here, so Roddy Piper conveniently is absent today. You know, he's probably wandering around the country lost somewhere. You people don't realize what kind of guy Roddy Piper is. The only time he knows for sure where he's going, is when he takes X-lax. You know what I'm talking about. That's the kind of guy Roddy Piper is. I'm going to be back here every week until that man shows his face, and I'm going to show him who the new king is around here. You know what I'm talking about? Thank you very much, uh,
3: Jerry Lawler. Uh, People can say what they want, but he is an outstanding competitor.
0: Yeah, well, you know... Thank you very much. You know, he comes out here and... uh, he says that uh, he came here because he heard I was king. Well, I ain't never been king of nothing. I've been a peasant all my life, and I don't want to be a king. I'm one of them guys that have been looking for the foreman just to knock him out. Just I'm got One of them guys that have been looking for his boss just to just to come here and say, just to knock him out. So maybe this is my chance to knock a king out. You see, he comes down here, and he says all kinds of stuff. And then I see him take his robe off, and I take a look at him, and it looks like he's had six litters of kangaroos. Do you see the pectoral muscles in the sky? Are you ripping me, man? You're going to come down in here and do what? You're going to come down here and talk about Roddy Piper and I'm supposed to sit here and be a good boy and don't do nothing. Well, you're going to find out something, Lawler. You're going to find out why people do not like to fight Roddy Piper. Because I do not hit a man when he's down. I kick him. It's easier. Wow.
3: As I've said before and I'll say it once again, if you have any trouble understanding where Roddy Piper's coming from, there's something wrong with you.
1: Once again, for review purposes only, we are using that little bit of audio from Georgia Championship Wrestling. I mean, I Brandon, I absolutely love it. First, Piper. I mean, Piper is the ultimate example of an old saying in wrestling, the better you are as a heel, the better you're going to be as a babyface.
2: Uh, He proved it sort of just in that one interview. He started out pretty much completely babyface and then just turned it in half a second and went the complete 180 and was, was great, you know, and, and Piper's always awesome. The, I love the, the litter of kangaroos line and I used to (laughs) love the dun, da, 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 you know, the parquet or whatever he used to do with his hands with the crown and the, the, the butter and all that. But yeah, it was just really, really good. And, It's too bad that didn't happen.
1: It really is. I love it when Roddy says, you know, I I guess I have to sit here and be humiliated by watching these clips. I was like, okay, Rod. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, when Lawler, and I know, I, I mean, I got to see, you guys got to listen to it, when he's like, who I hear there's a king, already a king here in Georgia. Who could this man be? And and Roddy Piper, and then the fans explode as you heard. And Lawler, just the the, the master master psychology. His face drops like he's actually disappointed that the fans are cheering for Roddy Piper. It was great.
2: Yeah, that was just, that was that moment where, you know, he just turned it and was a really a master at, at both. He'd done it so much in Memphis that both, you know, both sides and he knew what he was doing uh on the microphone. That's for, that's for sure.
1: You know, one thing I loved about this show, and I, when they got rid of the studio, I understood why they did it, uh, because it looked really minor league compared to the WWF who had, uh, who had gone national and, you know, looked very major league on television, but I absolutely loved the atmosphere in that studio. It was unique. Uh, Florida was not like that. Mid-South was not like that. Obviously the WWF and AWA were not like that. I mean, it was, it was like being at a high school basketball game. The FanDuel, you know, they would sometimes cheer so loud or, or chant so loud that you had a hard time hearing the wrestler on TV, but that wasn't a negative. I, I, to me, I thought it was the greatest thing ever.
2: Yeah, they were they were unlike anything. I mean, the, the wildfire chants and pretty much all the the big baby faces, they the, they went completely nuts. Um And you're right. Florida wasn't like that. They would make noise and it was loud enough. But I guarantee when they people had that studio rock and when there was, you know, a big brawl or The two big names in there, those guys didn't have to worry about anybody hearing them calling a spot or anything because that place was loud.
1: It's a place I absolutely wish I could have experienced. And again, I I understood why they had to, they had to leave it, but I mean, I I definitely miss it. it. It really, it actually wasn't the same when Crockett took over in 85 as it was like 81, 82. No, it wasn't. And I'm the same way. And I,
2: I mean, I get it. it's because I'm old and that's what I grew up on. And, um, that's what I liked, but that's what wrestling was every Saturday for every thing that I could get. It was all, you know, the, the studio audiences and, and you knew that they had matches at arenas, but you had to go pay for that. Um, So that was part of the psychology of it, too. You know, you understood that they also were in in bigger places, but this is, you know, how you watched and and whatever. So except for the the MSG telecast that I got, everything I watched, you know, was in a studio. So when that's all, you know, that's all, you know, you know.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's it's all the world you grew up in, and I think even the younger listeners someday are going to understand that. Pro Wrestling Illustrated was always put in a tough spot when a wrestler was a babyface in one, one promotion and a heel in another, which is exactly what Jerry Lawler was doing here. And, of course, they had to make up a crazy story about how Roddy Piper put on a, a coonskin cap, uh, on television, which Jerry Lawler took offense to due to his, you know, Southern heritage or whatever, and that explains why Jerry Lawler wants to go to Atlanta and go after Roddy Piper. <laughs> Maybe they just should have ignored it. I don't know.
2: Well, they should have because the people in Memphis had seen Jerry enough. I mean, switch on a dime. They knew what he was like. I mean, they they would have just thought, hey, he's our ass kicker going down to kick their ass kickers' ass. So. Makes sense. They wouldn't have had a problem with it at all, I don't think.
1: No, I, I mean, it, I mean, we're getting 11 years ahead, but I mean, they masterfully explained why Jerry Lawler was a heel in the WWF, but a good guy in Memphis. And you know, that's, I think that's what PWI should have tried. Absolutely. Yes. Alright, the Tommy Rich versus Buzz Sawyer feud kinda started a little, the rivalry kinda started in 1981, but that was Georgia, I mean pretty much all of the baby faces were feuding with all of the heels um but at this point they are really going at it they uh, buzz sawyer uh power slams johnny rich outside the ring and injures him and now the buzz sawyer versus tommy rich feud is going on once again what were your thoughts on that feud in general brandon i loved it and that was one of the biggest clips
2: that i wanted to see again when i ordered my first tapes from you and as we're sitting here doing this, i am actually got 1982 Fall Georgia playing, so I'm kind of watching it, and the clip from, I think it's from Chattanooga. It is. Tommy runs in with the uh, trash can, or one of them does, and then they're fighting out on the stage, and um, it was just uh, kind of, it was brutal and hardcore before that was really a thing thing yet you know there would already been the patterson slaughter alley fight and, and all that but that was just kind of a lot of blood with you know not a bunch of really hardcore stuff but that was just a fight in the dressing room and um i loved it i loved it all the way up to the end i was tired of it by the end but at the time i was 12 13 i loved tommy rich i loved buzz sawyer I loved them both, and at the time, you could not have convinced me that those two guys were good buddies and running the roads and doing horrible things. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I loved it. I, I thought they were incredible
1: yeah, I I thought the same thing. Believe it or not, I was like 17, 18 years old, and I loved Tommy Rich. I thought Tommy Rich was great. I thought Buzz Sawyer, I, I did not like him. But the feud, even without any like outside influence, like I, I wasn't getting the Observer or anything like that, by the time the feud continued well into 1983 – uh, I was tired of it. I was, you know, I was tired of both that and the Von Erichs' Freebirds by fall of 1983. And to me, it was obvious when they did the the cage match in Atlanta, like the the last battle of Atlanta between Buzz Sawyer and Tommy Rich. I'm like, okay, they're squeezing in one more of these matches uh, right before Buzz Sawyer turns babyface, and that's exactly what happened.
2: Yeah, and then they teamed the next uh, card, I think, or, or the one after, and. Um so yeah, it definitely went too long, but Buzz was just so intense. That's what I liked about him. I, I wasn't a heel fan yet. So I guess I'm sort of looking back with my eyes now. I was definitely cheering for Rich during the feud. I think it was his intensity as a, as a heel. There almost wasn't anybody like him. Um, Orndorf was sort of had that kind of same intensity, not as manic or anything, but just the, um just that intensity made every move look devastating and and killer
1: yeah one thing i liked about georgia is I mean Dusty Rhodes came in every now and then, and you know Dusty was Dusty. Okay, he did that kick-ass babyface interview. Tommy Rich had his own style, which I I thought was fantastic. It got over obviously in Georgia. But it got over with me as a kid in New Hampshire watching it. And then you've got you know uh, Paul Orndorff, who is the consummate just professional, uh, soft-spoken. Uh, you know, just goes out there like he's a regular athlete. I mean, they had guys. Book read was a little bit more intense. You had guys across the board. It made things interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, it helped so much for guys to be able to move around and, and to keep things fresh. And you never knew from week to week who might show up. You know, at the podium with Gordon. And it was like that, you know, not as much in in St. Louis, but um, everywhere. Um, And that's why guys, to me, were so much better. They worked every single night of the week, pretty much, except Sundays or whatever in some territories they did. But they worked with different guys every single night. They were in front of a crowd every single night, listening to what they wanted. They knew how to. I, it was just a different art back then. Um, I, that, and, I, you know, I I just loved that so much more. I understand why it's different now. But, um, yeah, it, it just kept things so much
1: fresher when, when, they were able to mix it up like that. Oh totally. I mean and you know not this isn't about Georgia, but Boston got different WWF shows than than Madison Square Garden and they got uh, and Philadelphia got different shows than either one of those two territory uh, cities, excuse me, and Pittsburgh and Baltimore had their own shows. I mean, yes, eventually you were going to see if it was 1980, we we're going to get Ken Patera against Bob Backlund in every city, but you know the the undercard was different and you could see you know maybe Patera versus Backland in April whereas Boston would get it in July
2: yes exactly I mean they staggered it out and that's one thing that senior was really good at um you know booking those giant buildings so far in advance and and staggering out the feuds that way and it was so nice for them to be able to bring heels in from the territories rotate them through all the cities and then back out to the territories it was you know just like a little conveyor belt or whatever and boy it worked for a long damn time
1: it did hey thanks for the run we'll see you again in two or three years Maybe. Um, Okay. One thing I liked about Georgia is you had the NWA champion, clearly the top guy in the sport. But there was a top guy in the territory, and that was defined almost by who had the national heavyweight championship. Um, In this case, the championship went from uh, let me. It went from (laughs) Super Destroyer to Paul Orndorff, back to Mass Superstar, and then back to Paul Orndorff. Do I have that lineage right, Brandon? I believe so, at least from the Georgia
2: record book, and this was all from like the end of August, is, uh, I think it was August 29th is when Super Destroyer won the round robin tournament, and then Orndorf beat him. At the next Omni card, then Superstar beat Orndorff at the next Omni card, and then Orndorff took it back at the next Omni card. So they did a little bit of hot potato with that for, for for a short little bit.
1: And that was something I liked about Georgia Championship Wrestling. You, if if you were watching, let's say the WWF title title changes compared to the other territory were quite rare the tag team titles changed hands twice a year the intercontinental championship maybe once a year wwf championship wasn't moving on any given saturday you could tune in georgia and hey we have a new national heavyweight champion and it could you know and as the words came out of gordon's mouth you're guessing who because it could have been any of one of five six seven guys
2: yeah absolutely and that did make it very exciting and you know when the georgia title was still around it was kind of even more so um i guess i did like it when they merged those two belts because they were kind of on you know same same par or whatever you want to call it so it was nice when they just merged them both into the national title that was a good name, I thought, and um, it was up there with, the, you know, the U.S. belt at Mid-Atlantic, and I kind of felt above, you know, the Southern title in Florida and, you know, the North American title in uh, Mid-South, but, you know, that was just my perception.
1: You know what? I actually thought the North American Championship was a little bit above because that was as high as you were getting in Mid-South for a long, long time. The NWA Champion didn't come there. So you're, you're, the NWA Champion was King of Georgia, whereas the, the North American Champion was, was King of Mid-South. But that's just the way I looked at it.
2: Well, that's actually true now that I think about it because, you know, before 80, 80- Five or whatever, Watts didn't use flare or, and race was rarely in. I, um, as far as I
1: remember, um,
2: could have been a couple little things here and there, but no, I think
1: you're right. Yeah, but I mean, it, you know, it was, it was a great program, and I was actually very happy to see Paul Orndorf. when he first got to Georgia. He immediately won the the, the national heavyweight championship, lost it, and then then he he gets back and he's really establishing himself as one of the top guys in the sport he's the number one guy on the number one show
2: yeah and you know he kind of got lucky um because evidently you know it was back in 77 but you know eddie graham sort of started him out and was kind of ready to let him go and sent him up to Jerry Jarrett and said, can you do something with this kid? And Jarrett put the title on him, Southern belt and figured, well, let's see if he'll sink or he'll swim. And he swam and, um, that really helped him. And by this time in 82, he was just so intense and, um, um, just a, a, a kick ass baby face, Um but one of the, one of my favorite ones at the time. His intensity, the kicks and his sharpness and everything was real crisp and he wasn't sloppy at all and um, I, I loved the guy and he was even better as a heel, I thought.
1: I, I just remember the first time I had ever heard the name Paul Orndorff. I was like 13 years old. I'd been following wrestling through the magazines for about 3 years and I am in New York on my way home from a Christmas trip, so it's like right before New Year's and there's an edition of the Wrestler magazine on, you know, on sale, so I grab it and I look and the new NWA tag team champions are Jimmy Snuka, who I'd heard of, and Paul Orndorff, who I had never heard of and I- I mean, it was just a big break for him, and obviously he went on to have a great career.
2: Yeah, and that would have been right after he left Memphis, because that was 77, 78, right at the end of, of that time, I think, after he left Memphis. And, um, I, you know, I, I wasn't getting Memphis in 77, so, you know, that was all knowledge that I'd gained later as far as Jarrett helping him out and putting the title on him, but, I I learned about him from the magazines as well, so my story's pretty much just like yours. I I think that would have been one of the first times I'd heard of him as well.
1: Yeah, it was. uh I got the magazine was probably printed or or, or created right around the beginning of fall 1978. They, they back in the day, the magazines ran behind. There was nothing you could do. One great feud they had in Georgia that had kind of fizzled out by fall of 1982. In the summer, they had kind of a triangular feud between the Samoans, Ole Anderson and Stan Hansen, and the Freebirds, Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy. Uh, Michael Hayes, by the the end of September, was gone. Uh, Terry Gordy stayed behind, and he was teaming with Tito Santana, which made no sense. Ole Anderson, and yeah, Ole Anderson had turned on Stan Hansen. Stan Hansen is now a babyface. The Samoans emerge as the winners of that feud, maybe by default, but they are the national tag team champions the entire fall of 1982. Uh, managed by Sonny King, I feel like I'm the only person who liked Sonny King as a manager in this role, but I liked him. And I mean, just like, uh, right now in this territory, the Samoans are a dominant tag team.
2: Just like they, you know, they were in the WWF. Um, it was weird kind of going back and seeing them in some clips from, I guess it was when Mulligan Murdoch had the dying Amarillo and they brought Abdullah in to kind of slaughter Sika. And that's one of the few clips that is out there. And it's just weird seeing them get thrown around because you never saw that. But they were the islanders then, but yes, they were, they were. They were great in Georgia. Of course, I'd known about them from from the WWF, and they were unbeatable monsters. And you were, I think, right about Hayes. I think he left right after that when they lost to the Samoans. I think he was gone as of like the end of August 82, actually. Because the very next week on TV, he's not there. Gordy's still there. And like you said, did some stuff with Santana and um, maybe a couple other you know, partners. But I guess that's when Hayes went to Dallas because he did go first, didn't he? And he was there by himself before Gordy
1: came in, wasn't he? He, he was there. And according to Hayes, um, when he, he went to Dallas and he wasn't planning on – Being there for long, but he saw the potential. Uh, He saw Ric Flair, Russell, Kerry, Von Erich. I think this was August '82, and he just saw potential in the territory, which you know at the time was a mid major. But by the time you know this is '82, by the time middle of '83 comes along, it's no longer a mid major. The Von Erichs and the Freebirds are on the covers of magazines, etc. Know, but according to Hayes he called up Terry Gordy he's like hey you got to get out here it's it's about to happen out here
2: yeah and you know it's funny um, because tons of guys say oh we went in and popped that territory when he says it th- that's one of the times that you know it's that actually happened without a doubt they came in and, and popped that place now of course they had the Von Erichs to work with so it wasn't just them but the, the, uh, I, I know we're talking about Georgia, but all they had was kind of older heels there at the time. They had nobody young and dynamic like that to really work with, and I, it, we saw what it did. So,
1: I, I think I've mentioned this on the show before. Maybe eight years ago, when, uh, when WWE Network first came out and they dropped a whole bunch of world-class championship. The wrestling episodes from 1982. I was ex- as excited as a person could be. I think they dropped the entire year. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get to see a year of stuff. I have never seen before and about six episodes into it i tapped out it was just not very good the main heels were like the great kabuki who's fine but he's in a tag team with the magic dragon and then you've got king kong bundy and wild bill erwin two guys i like individually but you can't ride those guys in 1982
2: no they just had they were no you're absolutely right so they needed some younger heels to come in and, and, and do it. And they really did. And, and you're right about that show. The, the show that I wish they would put out was the championship sports Saturday night wrestling show. That's where I think most of the cool stuff really happened for as far as world class goes. Um, I wish those would, a lot of those would come out. And I'm talking the earlier ones. I know there's some of the late, later ones out there, but. Um, I think the early ones were, were even a little better. They just had longer matches, two out of three falls. And, you know, um, just for a historical sense, um, cause it was still the same, same old heels that they had to work with on the, um, syndicated show. But I think a lot more of the angles and stuff happened on, on that, uh, Saturday night show.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, especially again, earlier before the, the, uh, the Dallas show went into syndication. That's when they started paying more attention to that show, but the Fort Worth show got a lot more love before that, like 1982 and before. Um. in Georgia, we have Ivan Koloff, who has returned from a long run in the mid-Atlantic area, where he was kind of a mid-card guy, to be honest with you, feuding with Jimmy Valiant. And now he's back in Georgia, and fall of 1982, it is the beginning of a big push for him.
2: Yeah, and this is sort of a sad period for me for him, because I always loved him, and I know he did much better even a few years later. But at the time I was shocked at how much weight he had dropped because I wasn't seeing him every week. And uh, that was a little odd to me. But then once he got teamed up with the Iron Sheik and they had the feud with Dusty and Murdoch and all that, I guess that would have been a little later, 83. Um, but he was always a workhorse. He's great in the ring. And um, when I was watching the the thing earlier with Piper and Murdoch, um, it might have been one of his first matches. He came in and faced uh, Pritchard, and I was surprised at, at, at how good the match was. Um, but, yeah, I, I, Ivan's always been great. I don't think anybody has a bad word to say about him, you know, wrestling-wise, um wrestler-wise.
1: I remember he was back in the WWF. Uh, summer, spring, 1983, and I had wrestling on. One of my dad's friends was are over, and he couldn't believe how much Ivan Kolov shrunk. Ivan went from this 290 pound, or at least billed as such, Russian monster, and then he just got way smaller. But he was an excellent worker into his 40s.
2: Yes, that's why. That's why I said, you know, it was weird because this was just 82 and i'm like he's so much smaller and then you think even in 86 and stuff how much he a big part of uh you know mid-atlantic and but he was at the time so he still had a lot of damn years left in him even at that point so what did i know as a 12 year old i guess i was just kind of saddened to see him you know that much smaller but he, he was still kick-ass and he was a great worker. He was always moving, uh, never boring. And, um, I always loved the top rope knee drop to the face. Um, I was a little disappointed in his, you know, feud with, with Backlund, but everything about 83 Backlund kind of disappointed me, but I digress. So.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I've mentioned this on Stick Wrestling before. The Ivan Koloff versus Bob Backlund match at the Boston Garden, when that match was done, I was like, wow, that's the greatest match I have ever seen live. And I saw Backlund versus Orton. I saw Patterson versus Slaughter in the alley fight. So I can at least tell you that the matches were good. There is a match on uh, Peacock on the WWE part of it, for Madison Square Garden, Bob Backlund versus Ivan Koloff, which was recently released. Yes, and, and it wasn't... A, go ahead, I'm sorry, it wasn't as I cut good, you off. No, it's okay. I, it wasn't as good as the match I remembered from Boston, but it was a good match. I, yes, and they did everything kind of that they did in the
2: 78 match. I guess my disappointment was more in the fact that he was just a one and a done. I wish they would have done a blood stoppage or something, but... Um, and, you know, built him up and not been such a scientific match because, you know, Kolov could do that, but he was sort of a, you know, he was a Russian badass. He was supposed to be a, a real heel. So, um, but you know, he was getting up in age and I know Bob liked him, but, and yes, I've seen that match and it was fine. Um, I, you know, I guess I'm just thinking about 78 Koloff.
1: Yeah, and Koloff. I mean, when he when I first started watching in '76, I mean, he was a monster. He was he was shorter than superstar Billy Graham, and he was not as cut up as superstar Billy Graham. But proportionately, he was as big as superstar Billy Graham, and superstar Billy Graham was big.
2: He was gigantic, yes, and he he didn't look you know small standing next to him at all. Um, They they were a great team at the time, actually
1: they were they were you know over as a super team, like you know two of the elite heels in the sport, iron Sheik is in Georgia here, uh, coming in from Mid-Atlantic. Uh, he changed his gear. He was no longer wearing traditional trunks and the, I don't know, the Iranian boots with the point on them. He has now got this bizarre... Uh, I mean, it's, it's the look that we're all used to now because he kept it throughout his uh, 80s WWF run, but like these bizarre pants with the word Iran running down the sides of both legs. But, I mean, you got to give it to he, you know he was ultra even at this point but man he could wrestle
2: yes i mean we all know his credentials and how good he was and how much you know backland and some of the guys that were real wrestlers and had real college credentials and, and and beyond how much they respected him and you know it's kind of a shame you know what the drugs did to him and all but um that's one guy that you, you wouldn't wouldn't want to mess with. And he, he was, you know, I never bought him really, I guess in 79 yet when he was in the WWF. Cause they couldn't really, the, we never got to see the backland match till much later. And I, you know, maybe it was cause the Iran thing, they couldn't play him up as much cause they, you know, still feared riots and stuff at the time, but I just didn't get how good he was yet. And, um, and then, you know, it was later, I guess in early 83 when he teamed with, with Koloff and they did the, the double bull rope chain match with Rhodes and Murdoch and that, you know, that, that's just good stuff to, as far as I'm concerned.
1: That would, that might have been the last great feud of Georgia Championship Wrestling when they had, uh, Ivan Koloff and Iron Sheik against Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch. I, I can't think of a. An- Another feud that they had that was as good or better, and Georgia was gone uh, about a year after that. Okay, Georgia has two young guys wrestling here that looked like they had great futures. In reality, it just didn't happen. But Brad Armstrong looked like a future star. Like, you could tell he was one of the youngest guys out there. I think he was only like 22, 23, and moved great. It looked like he had some growing out to do you know as far as personality goes but he he looked like you know and i miss this kind of wrestler it's like okay he's young he doesn't win all all of his matches but you know he's going to get better
2: yeah i thought the same and he was great at and it's sort of like the tommy rich thing he was really good at fighting out from underneath the bigger guys he had that real fire in his comebacks and and the people bought him and the, the women loved him and I, you know, I liked him too. I thought he was kick ass enough for being a young guy and I admired his dad. I loved Bob because he was definitely an ass kicker and it's just too bad, you know, that he wasn't able to project the personality that he evidently had around everybody else. He just couldn't make it come out and grip the camera or the people Um, cause well, you know, I think we've heard a ton of people say if he could have just been the way he was backstage with people, it would have been incredible, you know?
1: I mean, I've heard from too many people that, exactly what you just said, that if Brad could have gotten his personality uh, from behind the camera, in front of the camera, he would have gotten over like crazy. I can't believe we're running out of time. I've got so many other guys I want to talk about. The other younger guy was Matt Bourne. Um, I was familiar with Matt through the magazines. I know he had wrestled in Portland. Uh, Portland was kind of a springboard territory where you learned your art, and then if you were good enough you came out and wrestled in a major territory matt born was another guy that i mean he i thought i always thought he could have been more than he was but then again you hear about the behind the scenes stuff with matt born and you kind of okay that's what happened
2: yeah i mean i definitely bought him as a pretty tough guy at the time you know I don't know if he was actually but it definitely came across to a 12 year old that you know I would have been afraid of the guy um, so I bought it at the time and didn't know anything about you know his his backstage problems and extracurricular stuff had no idea that his dad was a major star in Portland and a very kick ass you know guy so oh, yeah he could have definitely uh, been better, and I, I think he's probably lucky. And I, you know, it's good, and he made money with the Doink Run, so at least he got that. I guess, you know,
1: I don't know. No, that that's a good way of looking at it. He he did achieve some stardom as Doink, and for those unaware, um, Matt Bourne was in. They would beginning of nineteen eighty three team him with Arn Anderson with um Paul Ellering as their manager, and they were scheduled to be the tag team champions and get a nice run with the titles and Matt ran into some legal problems where he couldn't enter the state of Ohio anymore and that was the end of that.
2: Yeah, and that's too bad because they were a great team and what's funny too, and I was going to mention it earlier, I think Jim (laughs) Verderoso showed up for the first time in the fall of 82 looking at uh, my book here Um, he was at least did a couple of the squash matches and I know, you know, that was Arn's, you know, first name. I did, why they didn't call him Marty Lundy at the time, I don't know, but, um, he, he came in, I guess, you know, during the fall of 82, since we're speaking about the fall of 82.
1: I had forgotten that he had come back or he had entered under that name, but you're right. He, he did. Um Arn you know Arn was a guy it took me a while to get warmed up to, believe it or not. I thought when I saw him in eighty three, I'm like, this guy's boring, he's he, you know, because he's only. I I bought the story, because he's Oly's nephew or whatever, he's getting a push. And I I thought the guy was boring, and then when he came back in eighty five, it was like watching a star being born. I absolutely love the guy.
2: Yeah, I mean, something clicked along the way for him. Somebody told him something, he picked something up, but you're right, something changed and clicked for him in that period where it came out, and, boy, he wrote it for all it was worth. I mean, one of the all-time greats for sure.
1: Yeah, I think so. Two guys that I, I cannot stop this podcast without talking about. The Super Destroyer. He was the national heavyweight champion. Uh, he was over in this territory. The day of masked wrestlers being over was coming to a close. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but that that gimmick had kind of run its course, despite the fact that Georgia was pushing at least two masked guys, uh, Masked Superstar and Super Destroyer, and sometimes the assassin would be with the three of them. But, I mean, I always bought Super Destroyer as a top guy, even even though he really didn't get over anywhere else. He was a mid-card guy in Florida, um, and then after this tour, he wound up in mid, in mid-south and was a mid-carter there. He went to world class and was part of a tag team. And then he finally dropped the gimmick. But in Georgia, for whatever reason, he managed to make it click.
2: Yeah. And I really liked him. And I think maybe having the mass superstar around helped him doing that tag team because as much as i did like superstar uh, the mask the masks or the super destroyer the Masked superstar was just to me several level, levels above him um but they worked great as a team together they're both gigantic dudes they were devastating and um so maybe the the fact that E was there to maybe help him a little bit um I don't know helped him get over a little more.
1: Um I don't
2: know, but I liked him too, but not as much as as I did the Mass Superstar.
1: You you just made an excellent point, Brendan. Whenever I saw the Mass Superstar and the Super Destroyer as a team or doing an interview together, Mass Superstar was Batman and the Super Destroyer was Robin, no question about it.
2: Yeah, and God, Superstar's interviews were just so good. He he had that buddy Cole thing where He never had to really raise his voice and you believed every word he said.
1: Yeah, totally. All right. I said two more guys. I actually meant three more guys. Well, uh, one tag team and one singles guy. The Moondogs were an interesting addition, uh, to the Georgia roster. They were managed by someone named General Homer Odell, who got a, a brief but kind of big push, uh, late fall into the winter, um, but like, I just, they really didn't, they were here, but they didn't seem to have a role. And it was odd because the Samoans were the tag team champion. So, I mean, you know, I, I just didn't understand their role and I, I still don't. No. And, you know,
2: unless they knew the Samoans or thought they were going to be leaving because they're kind of both sort of savages. And for me, the Moondogs were just not as good once King couldn't get back in the U S he was so much bigger and they were so much more vicious when he was part of the team. Now I know in Memphis they were, you know, big ass kickers there, but it was cause they were just, you know, just abusing those job jobber guys. Oh yeah. Utilizing them. So, but they weren't as effective in, in Georgia to me. I'm kind of the same way. And, and I sort of like their WWF run, but like you said, you know, that's when King was still part of it, the ex Sailor White, you know, and he was just so much bigger and, and more vicious than, um, I, I forget the guy's name that, uh, became, um, not Randy Collie, um, the other guy, um, I know was, who you're talking wasn't, about, spot. wasn't Big enough, yeah, yeah, so.
1: No, I agree with you. And it was, you know, the WWF created these tag teams like the Executioners, Yukon Lumberjacks, Moondogs. And I knew the, the Samoans were together before the WWF run, but the, the Moondogs weren't. And it was a, a rare case where we see this WWF created act going on to another place.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, you know, I'd seen them bloody up Gurria on the MSG telecast with their bone and they just seemed kind of like vicious guys and they kind of lost some of that when I guess, uh, Sailor White had visa troubles or something and couldn't get back in from Canada. So, but, um, you know, they were great in Memphis though.
1: They were, and this was, we're talking, 92. They had that crazy Memphis run out of nowhere, which we will discuss someday. I cannot end this podcast without talking about this gentleman. The first Russian I ever saw on TV or through the magazines, and I just like, this guy is about as Russian as I am, was, uh, his name was just in my head. He teamed with Alexis Smirdoff, thank you. And I just did not buy this guy as a Russian. And now on television, we have this Kostia Korchenko guy who is the worst Russian or worst Russian character ever to be used on a major promotion. And even in 1982, I looked at this guy and I was like, you've got to be kidding me.
2: I was the same way. And I I felt that way even didn't he go to mid-south even a little later and do some stuff i just never really bought him he was gigantic and i knew he could hurt me you know at the time and and most people but i didn't i didn't buy him as anybody that was going to become big or i didn't think he would at least um so yeah um and it's sort of a forgotten name and it's funny because you know Alexis Smirnoff was actually a, a French Canadian guy so
1: <laughs> yeah you know what i almost feel bad like you know talking about Smirnoff and Korchenko in, in the same uh, sentence because Smirnov was a good wrestler i just didn't buy him as a russian Korchenko i mean he was he he wasn't just unathletic he was downright clumsy
2: he, he was a big musclehead guy and you know, I, you don't want to, I don't like to talk bad about people, but they were just bringing those types of guys in at the time. Almost anybody that had that kind of, you know, build and, and, and was big like that. And they were, uh, some of them were obviously mistakes and, and he was one of them.
1: <laughs> yeah. He was someone, you know, I followed. Wrestling through the magazines. If you were any kind of a name, I had at least heard of you. I had at least read you in the results of one of Melby's magazines and, you know, nothing on this guy. But Brandon, we are unfortunately out of time. We actually ran a little bit late, but great show. Thank you for being a great guest. Thanks for coming back.
2: Absolutely, man. Anytime. I always appreciate it. And, um, it's always a, a ton of fun. So thanks, John. And well, that's. Lou.
1: That's exactly what I want to be a ton of fun. I hope everyone enjoyed listening. We're going to do it again next week. I want to thank Brian last for giving me this, uh, this podcast, this forum, if you will. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. Producing stick to wrestling, he works very hard on it every week. Um, by the time you'll hear this, Lou will still be in Las Vegas partying with the uh, cauliflower or the CAC, whatever it's, it stands for. And I hope he has a great time out there. And this has been come. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols!
2: This concludes our podcast day.